think it was a couple of months ago now, but Lindsay and I went and visited a, a famous mansion uh, over in North Carolina. And they, they do tours through the mansion and they explain how the mansion was built and the process that went into it. And part of what you find out through the tour is that when they were designing this mansion, they brought in specialists that were essentially at the top of their field in different areas uh, to make this mansion be beautiful. So they brought in, you know, the best they could of, of architects and of artists. They were using the estate um, to like raise livestock. So they had people that came in to help them know what to do with the livestock. So they had all these different people that would be able to counsel them in these specific areas so that the mansion would not only be strong and beautiful, but it would be thriving. And the result is truly beautiful. It is a beautiful mansion. Uh, If we can consider for a moment, though, if for some reason all these specialists have gathered together for the construction of this mansion and they just decide they're going to swap jobs. If the farmer and specialist and the livestock all of a sudden becomes the architect, I don't know how many of us want to step foot into the building. Because the likelihood of that building staying standing while people are in it becomes much less. If, let's say, um, the person who knows about uh, growing flowers and those sorts of things becomes the artist, sculptures are not necessarily going to be as good. Like if someone like me were to become the artist then, you're going to have a lot of stick figures. (laughs) Not as many people are going to want to visit flowers and the livestock are not going to thrive if someone switches and tries to take care of these things that they don't understand. It is through the embracing of the trade that the mansion is able to thrive. If people resist their gifting, if they resist their calling, the results will be tragic instead. We need to understand that it's through a knowledge of our design and a knowledge of our calling met with an embracing of that design and calling that allows us to rejoice in what God has made us to be. God has given us a specific design and calling by which we worship him and enjoy him forever. And as we embrace that, we abound in joy and in blessing and thanksgiving. So as we, as we go through this passage, it, you know, this kind of can seem like a hodgepodge of a passage with the different instructions that are here, but I think there is a very central theme that goes throughout which is that every aspect of life matters since it is all from God. Every aspect of life matters since it is all from God. We've been discussing, and this is really the tail end of this section that uh, has been focused on expositing the fifth word in the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. This is an expansion of how we are to understand that command to not murder. And so what we've been seeing is rather interesting because a lot of what we've been discussing is that the, the breeding grounds for murder starts right in our own hearts. And even the first manifestation of that problem is seen just in a mismanagement of family, not treating family the way that we ought to treat family. And it's from that sort of misappropriation of loving God that manifests in mismanaging the household and the immediate spheres that leads to such a dynamic where we would mistreat image bearers to the extent that we would kill them. We'll discuss this further, but this is right in line with the New Testament's exposition of this to say that anger in your heart is murder. That's where it comes from. There's been this discussion of family dynamics, like I said, and I think that is meant to convey not only how sin grows into such a heinous act as murder, but also to convey a point. Israel was called to be the bride to Yahweh. They entered into covenant with Yahweh at Sinai. It's described as a marriage covenant. Additionally, God called Israel out of Egypt as his firstborn son. I think part of the reason for the family imagery in this section is to convey that Israel as a whole should look at this section and know that they do not meet the commands because they have not proven to be a faithful bride. They have not proven to be an obedient son. This section is not to be about the worst sinners we can think of. It's, about to, it's meant to make us think of ourselves first and foremost. And what that is intended to do, especially in the family terms, is to drive us toward a faithful son to God that can be what we are not, who will be the bridegroom that redeems the bride so that she would be pure and faithful to the Lord her God. 
So that's where this general passage is moving as we pick up here in chapter 22, verse 1. It says, You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. This is really helpful instruction for parenting. God does not support the concept of finders, keepers, losers, weepers. <laughs> and in addition to that, you, you are not to see this animal going astray and to steal it. You also can't say, well, if I don't get to steal it, I'm going to just let them be. No, God says you are not to ignore them. You shall not see your brother's ox or sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. There is no dodging of responsibility in how we love others. And you'll notice here, the, the term that's used is to describe your brother. Again, we're coming back to this uh, family language. What's interesting is that the concepts in these verses are said earlier in Exodus 23. And when they're discussed in Exodus 23, it's talking about your enemy. So the question is, is this a, a, a different passage than what was talked about in Exodus 23? Like, is this a shift in topic to extend the principle? So I, I think we're going to get some clarity on that as we go forward. Verse 2 says, And if he does not live near you, and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house, and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. Now, did you catch that? You don't know who he is. You do not know who he is. This unknown person is still called a brother. So I think this is actually right in line with Exodus 23. And the point here is that this person is a brother, regardless of whether they're an enemy or not, whether you know them or not, because they are in the same covenant relationship with God that you are. It is that covenant community that renders strangers and even enemies brothers through a relationship with God. Certainly, that's instructive for us. We're in a better covenant. That means our brotherhood should be a better brotherhood. We know this. It's plain. We say it all the time. It flows right out of John 13. We will be known as the disciples of Christ by our love for one another. And I think this passage helps to see the sacrificial dynamic there. Because in this passage... What you're supposed to do, if this person that you don't know isn't near you, you take the animal you find, you bring it home to your house, you take care of it, and then when the person comes around to reclaim that animal, you just surrender it. You take care of what's not yours, and then you surrender it right back to the person it belongs to. Unless we think this is only for the ox or the sheep, it, the, the concept expands into the next verse. It says, and you shall do the same with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. Again, there is that command. You don't get to ignore the needs of those around you. So you're supposed to care for this brother in any way that is necessary and it is not focused on some sort of repayment. There's no sort of transaction that happens when the exchange of what's lost takes place. You give back what is that person's without expecting anything in return. And why is that? Because you as the person caring for the individual have the reward of imitating God who cares for us simply by his grace. That is the reward. This portrayal of selfless service of others based off of whatever they need, is instructive for how we understand the dynamic of spiritual gifts. I think it is very helpful to know what your spiritual gifts are, but I think in New Testament terms and in biblical terms, it's far more helpful to be attentive to needs. If we come to church attentive to needs, we will be more ideally situated to actually use spiritual gifts in a fruitful and productive way for the benefit of the body. And I'm not, like, this isn't a, a cute concept. Paul it makes this point emphatically to the Corinthians. There's a lot of discussion about spiritual gifts from 1 Corinthians. This is the verse that I think is perhaps the most helpful and is discussed yet the least. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, the Corinthians are eager to understand their spiritual gifts, this is the key. Strive to excel in building up the church. Orient your focus towards glorifying God by loving others. 
We can see the needs around us and trust that God is going to give us sufficient gifting to meet that need as we are in the opportune situation to meet that need. And God indeed does provide for his people through his people. And if we are to focus on how to just meet needs and we're attentive to needs, oftentimes that's the actual means by which we find what we're gifted at. If we seek to meet the needs of others and we we just find that God has blessed us with an excellence in meeting certain needs in certain ways, then we know, okay, I do have a gifting in this certain way. Similar to what we're seeing here, we must not come to church with this sort of blinders up mindset of I want to ignore what might be going on and skate through without having to meet needs. We need to be involved in one another's lives. If we're unsure about where to help, this is a grace of God that we have deacons that we can go to, like Pastor Jeff was laying out last week. We can go to these deacons who are not meant to do that serving ministry on their own. They're merely meant to lead us in that serving ministry. They can give us clarity about how to further serve the church. And we can ask our elders for further help about understanding how we are gifted as we continue in that ministry of serving the church. But this also necessitates that when we are in need, that we have the humility to receive that help. We are creatures. God has created us. And we are inherently dependent upon God. And that doesn't ever change. For the most mature Christian, they're still just as dependent on God as they were when they first became a Christian. There's no change in that dynamic. Our existence hinges on God holding us together every single moment. We are always dependent. And yet, I think because of the individualism in Western culture, we resist receiving help when we really need it. And I just want to point out, we think that that doesn't do anything to the rest of the body, and it it does in a a subtle uh, but sinister way. What it conveys is that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and we don't really live dependently on God. And if that's our mindset with our needs, what that's going to do is draw our focus away from God towards self-sufficiency, which isn't real. We aren't really self-sufficient. And when we shift our focus towards us and our ability to meet our own needs, what that ultimately does, where it comes home to roost, is that we are less focused on worshiping God as dependent creatures. So we need to be ready to meet needs, and when we are in need, ready to receive help. Verse 4 says, You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. This is really similar to the language that's used in verse 1. So I think there's kind of a mirrored structure here. And we're returning to this idea of helping with the animal that's fallen down and helping them be lifted up again. And what is being mirrored here, I think, is pushing us towards the middle, which is to say, No matter who it is or what their need is, you meet that need and you love them selflessly. When you see the beast that is under its burden, you still stop to help them. And I I was reading through Proverbs 12 this week for uh, Bible reading and I came across Proverbs 12.10. It says, Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beast, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. And I think Bruce Waltke had some helpful comments on this verse. When it talks about the righteous... They have a regard for all of life because all of life is from God. Everything God has made has some level of value because it is from God. And the righteous recognize that. The contrast is that the mercy of the wicked is cruel. And why is that? Because the wicked might want to act like they're being merciful in certain ways, but it's not real. It's a mirage. And we see this dynamic in the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not for the individual. It's for the the head of the household to lead his entire household in, whether it's family members or servants. And it even extends to your donkey, your ox, your livestock, any of them. God is intending for us to serve and to care for all of life and all of creation. And this isn't to say that all of life is necessarily equal. Humanity is special. It is, humans are made in the image of God. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But uh, one commentator was talking about how this dynamic we're seeing at the beginning of Deuteronomy 22 seems paralleled to the story of the Good Samaritan. No one stops to pick him up, the, the man who's on the road. 
He's, he's been beaten and is under a burden of sorts. And I think the parallel there is meant to convey, if, if we won't be faithful with the lesser, the ox or the donkey, we are not going to be faithful with the greater. Which goes right in line with what we've been discussing throughout the whole section on murder. If we neglect faithfulness in the little areas of life, that sin will grow. Sin does not stay the same size. Which brings us to verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. This is a big verse. I'm going to say some things about this verse. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on this verse, but I'm not going to say everything that can be said about this verse. I'm going to hopefully get us started. There is a good book on the topic of transgenderism, if you want to see me afterwards. Notice it is not a big book. I'm trying to be merciful here. So I'm going to say some. There's more that could be said. That book would be helpful if you want to go into it further. I also am probably going to end up phrasing things in light of the documentary we watched last night, so forgive me for unknown plagiarisms that might come this way. But notice what's being said here. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. Now, to consider what's going on here, I think it's really helpful that the ESV translated the word garment and the word cloak differently, because they are different words in the Hebrew. The word for garment that the woman is putting on is used to describe tools and weapons at different points in the Old Testament. When we were talking in 21, chapter 21 of Deuteronomy, we are talking about the man who is not attentive to his wife. This is what it leads to. The wife's putting on his garment, going to work, going to battle, because he has not cared for his family. It could also be because she's just simply disregarding what God's called her to be. That's true as well. But I think in context, we have to wonder, where's the man here? And then perhaps the man is not here taking care of his wife like he's supposed to because he's not heeded what's already been said in chapter 21. So the woman's putting on this garment, this, this equipment, if you want to translate it that way, this weaponry or, or, or equipment for tools. And then the word for cloak here, for nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, that's like an outer garment. And essentially it's the man is pursue, pursuing instead of his work and his protective duties, he is pursuing a beautification that's not what God designed man to ultimately pursue. We'll have more to say on this topic of clothing going forward into this next section. Um, But suffice it to say, I I think what's being conveyed here by the different terms and how the terms are not just about appearance, but about function, what God is forbidding is not just that you would try to look like the other gender, it's also that you wouldn't try to act like the other gender, that you wouldn't try to go against what God has called you to do, nor against how God has called you to look. One commentator talks about the language in this verse and says it it really probably should be translated, a woman shall never wear a man's garment. Never shall a man put on a woman's cloak. It's even stronger than what you're seeing there in the ESV. It says, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. So the question is why? Why is this an abomination? Why is this such a big deal? And I think first, well, one of the more obvious things is that death is going to flow from this. If you consider, if the woman goes out to battle, the garment, she's wearing the weapons, she's the one who goes out to battle instead of the man. God has not designed her for that sort of fighting capacity. And she is much more likely to lose the battle and die. And if the man is at home seeking to beautify himself, he'll be very ready to be killed as well because he is not being attentive to his duties. But even bigger than this being a very easy means for death to come, this is ultimately a problem of idolatry. God is not being glorified. Commentators discuss how this is likely something that happened in Context 
in this ancient culture, different uh, worship sessions for idols would include such cross-dressing activity. And I don't think that's meant to limit this to that context, but I think it's meant to show that such a rejection of God's design is idolatry and leads to full-blown idolatry. If we do not embrace the design that the Creator has given us, we will not render worship to the Creator either. So it seems that the lie of Satan in this verse is that it's better to be what you are not. And this is not the first instance that we see such a dynamic. This is exactly what happens in the Garden of Eden. When the serpent comes into the garden, who shows the leadership and initiative? Eve does. Adam, the text says, is right there next to her being passive. They did not embrace the roles God had given them in Genesis 1 and 2. And the result in Genesis 3, because of that sin, is death. Today, similar lies pervade our culture. There are these ideas that our our Western culture is so oppressively patriarchal that if you're a woman, it's better to be a man. I think a lot of men look at the reality that feminism has seeped into every area of our culture... And a lot of men think it would be better to be a woman. These lies continue. And the result is that people are deteriorating. As they reject God's design, their minds waste away, their bodies waste away, even through mutilation. And even as they pursue such things, thinking it will give them life and happiness, what they find is depression, high rates of suicide, because they are resisting the design of their creator. They are pursuing that which is impossible. You cannot actually change your gender. Because what God says here is, a woman should not wear a man's garment. She does not change her gender. It's impossible. This is where I think it is right, biblically speaking, to not follow if someone says these are my pronouns it is right to not go along with that lie but at the same time if we don't know what's going on in a situation we shouldn't assume either we've been seeing throughout deuteronomy we are not to make conclusions without solid evidence and actual investigation this is where perhaps it's helpful to use names until we know a situation uh, with any level of clarity So if someone asks us, why do we not celebrate Pride Month? I think there's an obvious general principle that's laid out in Scripture, which is that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's general pride. If we start becoming proud of sinful things that are an abomination to God, we can expect that to only be more clearly manifest in us. Additionally, the reason we don't celebrate pride is because we allow God's word to be the standard by which we evaluate what should be celebrated and what should not be celebrated. What is the standard for what we celebrate? Oftentimes the answer can be, well, consent. And I, 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 don't, I don't think that's really the operative principle here because I think we're seeing pedophilia start bubbling not necessarily overtly peddled yet, but it's coming. And so, if the principle is consent, pedophilia should be right out the door. So again, we have to come back to, what is the standard? By what standard are we operating? Most people don't want to support pedophilia, and they're going to have to reckon with this by what standard sooner rather than later. So we let God's word dictate the standard and we do not celebrate those things which are an abomination because we are not going to dishonor our creator and because we do not want to see the destruction of these image bearers. The celebration of pride is not to the benefit of those who want you to celebrate that pride. It can be a, a, a fearful thought to think about the ramifications that might come from this, losing jobs and different things like that. But this is where we have to walk by faith. We have to trust that God will provide as we are faithful to him. And perhaps that means we have to be content with less than we had before. Perhaps it means we have to be content 
with less than previous generations have had. I was listening to a commercial this morning um, as I, I was listening to music, and this commercial's whole basis was, hey, your parents have done all this traveling, so don't let them do more travel than you, so buy our luggage and go travel, so that way you can have as good of a life as your parents. Is that really the measure of a good life? Is it having as much stuff as someone else? Is it having as many experiences as our parents? The Bible is very clear that the good life comes from knowing God. And we have to stand for truth and be those who are content with what God has given us. Because godliness with contentment is great gain. I think we also have to approach this topic with a level of compassion. If someone were to have been fully involved in the lives of our culture, even to the point of having these surgeries that are ultimately mutilation, we have to understand that person can be saved. They are not too far gone. And if they repent and believe in Christ, if they repent and believe in Jesus Christ, not only can they be saved, they must be very welcomed and included in this local church or any church that claims the name of Jesus Christ. And, and when I say that, I mean like not a special section in the back corner welcomed wherever they was pleased to sit in our congregation. And something we were discussing last night is that there are situations where there's ongoing consequences for our sins. You know, if someone has gone through these surgeries and their body is bearing marks of their past sins, that's simply a testimony of God's grace to redeem them out of those sins. There should not be further shame because of that. If they've repented in belief, that's just a simple testimony of the fact that God can save anyone. And that's glorious. That book that I mentioned is helpful in talking about how we approach ministering the gospel in these situations. It says we really need to heed the words of Jude 23. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. We are seeing here in Deuteronomy 22 that we are to love other people, even those who would otherwise be our enemies, as our brothers. And that's the very means by which we can avoid any sense of murder. And that includes any individual that we might otherwise find to be hard to loving. We must love them as our brother, just as God has loved us in Christ. I think what should drive us to further compassion is a humble answering of the question, has the church been particularly faithful when it comes to the topic of gender? Consider the last 200 years of Western evangelicalism. Have we been particularly faithful on the topic of gender? The answer is a resounding no. There's full-blown egalitarianism that says that there is no significant distinction between men and women, that men really don't have to be pastors, that women can be pastors. There's even churches that might say that they don't believe such things, but still allow women to functionally act as pastors regardless. And what this passage, as we've been talking about, shows, it's not just about how they look or what their title is, it's what they're doing as well. We have muddied these waters. We have spread manure on the soil of our culture, and that has led to this growth that we see now today. And we would do well to be humbly recon, recon, uh, aware of that fact. We've seen how the church did not stand against the earliest forms of feminism, which has in large part led to where we are. And even today, churches that call themselves reformed will welcome families into the door, but tell dad, your children go over there, and your wife goes over to that Bible study, and we don't really think you need to do your job of leading your family intentionally. All we need is a tithe check. And if that's how churches have dealt with gender, it's not a shock that our military shows little value for masculinity, the welfare system subsidizes the exclusion of fathers from the home. And schools even view themselves as taking parents' places altogether in different instances. 
Men have failed to stand against what has been growing in this culture for a long time, and we have to humbly recognize that this problem is not separate from us. And I would like us to consider as well the impact that such gender confusion within the church has had on children. We might have said dad does not have to have as active of a role in his family's life, but the consequence has been mass departure of children from the church as they've gotten older. As dad becomes less spiritually engaged with his family, many children have become completely spiritually detached from the Lord their God. So dad does not ultimately determine salvation. God does. But God is very clear, like you see in Exodus 34, that what dad does spiritually has the most profound impact of any human being on the planet on his children. And many pastors know these things are going on, have been quiet about them while continuing to take a paycheck. And we have to understand that how we deal with these things is something we're going to have to give an account for. And that's not to say that women have had no part in this. Genesis 3 is clear that Eve's desire was going to be essentially contrary to her husband. Many women in the church have not been content with what God has called them to be. They have not been respectful towards their husbands. They've pursued ministries in the church that are not fitting for women. And the response from complementarians has oftentimes been to focus on how we are more similar than we are uniquely glorious as men and women. And all this is to say, to sum up, we shouldn't be shocked that after the church has failed to embrace God's calling and design for men and women, that the society has felt comfortable completely forsaking that calling and design as well. I know this is hard to consider. I I don't feel personally sufficient to talk about it, but here I have to. There's hope. There is good news. I want us to understand that how we experience that hope is through God's power and grace. And that means we have to, and it's it's fine and good see the problems out there and to engage in those battles as we can. But if we do so at the neglect of our most central priorities, it will all be for naught. So for us to properly align our priorities and to embrace God's power and grace to help us, we need to start with an understanding of God's design. So I'm going to briefly talk about God's design for men and women. So if you'll go over to Genesis 1 with me. So in Genesis 1, we're going to start here in verse 2. Um, and I'll just say up front, what the, the kind of the introductory thesis is that I'm trying to convey is that God has made two genders that each uniquely display the glory of God. God has made two genders that each uniquely display the glory of God. So we're going to talk about how. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So what we're seeing here in Genesis 1-2 is essentially, I, th- I think this is the correct interpretation, I think there's three problems that are laid out in Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form, the earth was void, And there was darkness over the face of the deep. And then what's the next thing that happens? Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. So darkness is being addressed right off the bat. And then what you see in the next section is that on the first three days of creation, God is bringing form to that which was without form. God says, Let there be light. And then he forms day and night on day one. On day two, God separates the waters above and the waters below. He's bringing form to the sky and the seas. Then on day three, God is bringing further form by separating the dry ground from the seas. God is bringing form. On day four, God causes the light, which I think is emanating from his own glory on the first day. 
he causes there to be a sun, moon, and stars that will fill the heavens with that light to reflect his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. So he fills that light with the sun, moon, and stars on day four. Day five, he fills the heavens with birds. He fills the sea with fish. And then on day six, God fills the dry ground with living creatures. So God took that which was without form and brought form in the first three days. And then he took that which had form but was empty and in days four, five, and six filled it. So all the problems that are laid out in Genesis 1-2, God answers. And the reason that's particularly pertinent for us is that God is demonstrating for man how they are to imitate God and reflect his glory in the creation as his image bearers. God is doing like the tutorial in creation. So if we, if we could uh, pop up the slide that I had prepared, uh, and if you'll turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis 1 verse 27. So I, I'm borrowing this from a book called Kingdom Through Covenant, and this is just taking Genesis 1, 27 and 28 and showing how there's a structure to it. It's meant to be understood in a paralleled way to help us understand what God means. So I'll I'll explain. The first part says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So man is made in the image of God. And I think the masculine language here is to help us understand the man's specific calling and design. And the mirrored part here shows what it means that man is made in God's image. God has made man to reflect his glory and rule as his image bearer by subduing the earth, having dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Men are designed with a unique amount of strength for establishing God's dominion on earth. But if you can imagine... Like, I mean, if, if we just took you to one of the national parks and we said, you get to be the ranger over this park all by yourself, that would be an overwhelming, impossible project. So when Adam is made and he's told he needs to have dominion over the earth, he's realizing a problem. You see this as you go forward into Genesis 2. Adam is naming these animals that have a helper suitable for them. So that they can do what we read in Genesis 1 where the animals can fill the earth by multiplication. Adam can't establish the dominion on his own. He needs to be able to multiply other image bearers to help him. And so God says in this next part, male and female, he created them. The female is introduced here and this I think shows a detail about what it means to be a woman. The answer to what is a woman. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The woman is an image bearer of God made to be a helper to man specifically designed for filling the earth with life, beauty, and glory. That's what a woman is. Adam cannot establish the dominion or establish dominion on his own. He needs other little image bearers and the woman is his helper in that pursuit of dominion. He can't establish dominion on his own. He needs the woman. The woman is there uniquely designed for fruitfulness and multiplication and filling. But she also takes what the man offers in his seed to create those image bearers. So they each have a primary task is what I'm saying. The man's primary task is dominion. The woman's primary task is filling. Just like God brought form, the man brings form. Just like God filled, the woman primarily fills. And yet they need each other to do either task. They can't do either task on their own. So, what we're talking about here is that man and woman each have a unique way in which God has designed them and called them to demonstrate his glory. And we see how this extends to various areas. The man is meant to do his work and to provide materials that when he brings home to the woman, just like she takes his contribution and his seed and creates images from it. He can go do his work and bring home fruit. She can make a cobbler. He can go do his work and bring home wool and she can make a shirt. You can uh, go work hard and make money. And then Proverbs 31, she can take that money and invest it in another property. 
The man is to create an income that the woman can then multiply into beautiful things. What happens with children happens in life in general. And, and what I'm getting at here, in the middle of this passage, as the man embraces his design and calling, and the woman embraces her design and calling, they're experiencing God's blessing. It is through a submission and acceptance of what God has made us and called us to be that we experience the glory of God, that we convey the glory of God, that we enjoy blessing. Just as the light in the heavens is conveyed through the sun, the moon, and the stars now, we are meant to be the emanation of that light and glory as God's image bears on the earth. And we do that as we embrace God's calling and design on our lives. I think, this is, I think this fits well, what I'm laying out here with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19, Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 11, and the rest of the Bible. And, and what I want us to see is that what we talked about earlier is true. If we resist God's calling design, death will spread quickly. We will not experience glory and blessing. Because if the man rejects his calling to take dominion and to work hard, there won't be a sustenance provided to sustain life for those he's meant to care for. If the woman rejects filling and multiplying, she will die with no progeny. Her life and line, her family line, ends with her. Death spreads from a rejection of God's calling and design. We've all failed in these things, haven't we? No man or woman is going to stand up in this congregation and be able to say, I have done that calling and design perfectly. None of us. And in the context of marriage, it can be easy to say, well, that person sinned first, or that person sinned worse, and it just doesn't matter. What matters is that there's repentance. And men are called to take the lead in these instances. Doug Wilson frames it well, talking about the fall in Genesis 3, That, and uh, I think Jeff Bronner was mentioning this yesterday. Eve was guilty, and yet Adam is the one held responsible. And ultimately, they both need to repent. And that's the beauty of this. As we look at what God lays out for men and women, and we see our failure and sin, we know that marriage, men, women, we're all meant to convey ultimately not just the glory of God, but the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's hope. I think the way it was phrased in the documentary we watched yesterday was that God's grace restores nature. It is through God's grace that we can be what we were called to be. So we must be humble, we must be repentant, we must walk in faith, and we must teach our little ones to embrace the, God, the design God has given them as well, from the earliest ages. Teaching our sons to be strong, teaching our little girls to be nurturing. So if you'll go back with me to Deuteronomy 22. I know I've said a lot about, about this, but I think it's moving us in a, in a direction towards a further consideration of the gospel. So if you'll continue with me. It says, If you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourself, that it may go well with you and that you may live long. So what these verses are laying out is, is a a situation where there's a mother bird and there, there's little birds with her. And the command is that you don't take the mother, you take the young. And why would that be? Because if you take the um, mother and leave the young, the young are going to die anyway. All the birds will die that way. There's, I think there's embedded some level of concern for the ongoing life of these creatures by leaving the mother. But I think what's probably more likely is that this is a way in which there's continuing sustenance for the people who are living in the land. One of the commentators talked about how this is probably parallel to Deuteronomy 20 with the dynamic where you leave the fruit trees as you go and besiege a city so that way there's an ongoing yield of food for other image bearers to be sustained. So again, I think this fits with what we've been talking about. We have to have a concern for all of life because all of life comes from God. And it's funny, uh, one commentator was talking about how the Jewish people considered this the, the very least of all the commandments. 
And perhaps, I mean, there, there are commandments that are more substantial than others. Obviously, there's this greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. So even if this was the least commandment, consider the glory here. Uh, just as a parent, these verses help teach the value of all life. It teaches the concept of delayed gratification. You don't eat everything available to you. You have a mind for what you need and how you can be sustained properly through it. And you have a mind towards how you can provide for others in that, in that eating as well. So all that to say, the glory of God in the least commandment is rather profound. This should only help us to further embrace God's profound calling and design for each of us. Verse 8 says, When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So one commentator discusses how houses in this ancient context would have been situated in such a way that the first level was essentially for livestock and for supplies. The second level would have been your living space. But then you have this roof area that's kind of multi-purpose. Um, so like you, you would have used it for, for hosting other people when they came to visit you and that sort of thing. And uh, what we're seeing here is that if that part of the house, the, the roof, doesn't have a guard around it to protect the, the person who's coming to visit your house, and then they fall, the person who's liable is the head of the household. There's no, if you notice, there's no exception for the negligence of the individual on the roof. It's just if you have not situated your home to care for others, as the head of the household, that is your fault. And I think this passage ending in this way isn't just random. The discussion of the household really fits with what we've been discussing about family dynamics. Where we start to see our neglect for all of human life. And I think the first instance of this sort of failure of, of not protecting the house happens with Adam. The serpent comes into that garden and he does not deal with it in a proper way. His home is not protected. We have to have an attention to loving others from our heart to our home to everywhere out. And if we will not love others the way God has commanded us to, death will grow and can even result in murder. And I... What's interesting about this verse, the, the statements in the end, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it, those phrases, the guilt of blood and then the falling from it, those are two phrases that are first used in the Bible, or, or at least are used very early in the Bible, in Genesis 4 to describe Cain. He has blood guilt that comes from how he murders his brother, and that flows from his face being fallen. Adam did not protect his house. His household suffered consequences all the way into murder. And that blood guilt in a profound way, like we were seeing in Romans 5, that entrance of sin and death comes to Adam. And I think, again, all this is meant to be here for us to consider the fact that we are not better than the individuals proposed in these, in these laws, nor are we better than the original failure when we consider Adam and Cain when it comes to these laws. Like all of them, our worship gets diverted from the Lord our God. We pursue all manner of idolatry. And what we see in Romans 5, I think, is almost like a commentary on this passage. We have seen the love of God in Jesus Christ because we have been transferred from being enemies to those who are justified before God. We were, if you look at the beginning of the passage, we were those sheep that were going astray. But through the good shepherd, we have gone from enemies to brothers. We have gone from lost sheep to being squarely in the fold. And it's because the greater Adam has come. He took up his weaponry, his tools. He embraced 
the calling and design God had laid in front of him, Jesus did not abdicate his responsibility. And when we're considering what we read at the end of chapter 21, Lindsay was talking to me about this on the way home from the sermon. It's just, this is how it goes. I should have talked to her about it, the sermon more before I preached it, but I'm thankful for a good wife. When we looked at the man who's cursed hanging on a tree, it's a very masculine passage. It doesn't really have any sort of neutrality to convey any femininity to it. And I, and I think the intent there is to say that the man, the better Adam, is going to come around and bear the curse for his bride in a way that the first Adam should have done. So when Christ embraces his garment and his weaponry, he disarms the rulers and authorities through his death on the cross. And that's the victory. That's the victory we need that only he could achieve. And I think what we see here, and perhaps I'm wrong, but I think there could be a symbolic way in which he gives us the Holy Spirit, which descended on him like a dove, like a bird. And we, through the Holy Spirit, are brought into a sure, safe household through our Savior. So perhaps that's how this passage is structured. I very much could be wrong. But what we do see is that because Christ has redeemed us and made us part of his bride, the church, this one, this Adam, who has taken all authority in heaven and on earth, he, through his bride, is filling the world with the knowledge of the Lord's glory. That is our calling, to proclaim that gospel. It's easy to look around what's going on today and see how dark things are. And yet we know that none of this darkness is greater than God's power and grace and mercy in the gospel. If Christ has undone death through his resurrection, and he's undone all of our profound sins, certainly no sinner is too far gone for our God to redeem them. So as we even encounter different people who are lost in this sexual revolution, we can do so with an abundance of confidence in what God is able to do for them, just as he has done for us. So we put our faith squarely in Christ. We train the lost to repent and to cling to Christ because that is the only means of having true life and blessing and glory. And we train our children to follow the design and calling of our Creator, knowing that what, they've made, what God has made them to be is really just a picture of the gospel of Christ and his love for his bride, the church. If we focus on that light, we will not be intimidated by the darkness. And that is what we must do. Let's pray together. Father, I'm, in considering that, I'm just reminded of what we read from, from Jude earlier. That what we need to fear is you. But that fear of you drives out every other conceivable fear. Our Savior reigns. You are sovereign over all things. And all that is in this world is working together for our good and for your glory. And so I pray that we would be a confident people, a people abounding in faith, that we'd be a people that's abounding in love for one another, and that we would abound in love, proclaiming the gospel unashamedly to those people in this, in this world and in this community that are lost. You can save them just as you have saved us, and we pray that you would. You would save all these people around us who are lost, that they would be our brothers and sisters through your Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.